Well, good morning, Gospel Hope. Good. Good to see your wonderful faces, both the regulars and also our special guest. Um, so as you heard, we are kicking off a brand new series this morning. And um, as we do that, uh, the, the series is titled In Our Place. You've probably heard this phraseology many, many times as we declare the gospel that Jesus Christ died in our place, lived the life that we should have lived, uh, died the death that we should have died. And then, of course, he is raised from the dead. And it is our hope that if we place faith in him that we would also be resurrected like him. And so every aspect of what it means for Jesus to be in our place uh, it just echoes of the central message of the gospel. And so as we walk through this series, In Our Place, we're going to take on several uh, uh, chapters in the book of Luke and really unpack for you what it means for Jesus to have done all those things in our place. But before we do that, let's declare our desperate need and help for uh, this hour from God. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we declare in no uncertain terms that if you don't show up, Lord God, and make your unique holy presence available that all we've done is a social exercise and follow through on religious tradition. We declare, oh God, and we admit, we confess that, is, that if you don't show up, Heavenly Father, that the words that I share are, uh, the news is no better than what we might get from our favorite outlet, Heavenly Father, uh, on the television, unless, Lord God, these are the things that you are saying. There is no room, Heavenly Father, for us, Lord God, to get out in front of you or to say things, Lord God, that are not coming from you. So we pray, oh God, that you would tether our hearts to your word, that you would fill this time, Lord God, with your presence. You would allow us to know your presence, to hear your voice, oh God, and to feel your leading. Um, convict us, Heavenly Father. Comfort us. You know exactly what we need in this hour, and you know, Lord God, my complete and total insufficiency to provide that, Heavenly Father. It is you and you alone uh, that we need. And so we beg for your help, Lord God, in this hour. In uh, Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So... One of the things that uh, we hope that you have felt, whether it is your first time or your 52nd Sunday with us, is that we at Gospel Hope want to make sure that the gospel is woven into every single message. And we've also developed a new trend to also make sure that in every single illustration, there is some late 70s or early 1980s uh, evening television reference. So we've already covered MacGyver. Uh, I think we've also done the A-Team. And so this morning, I'm going to talk about the $6 million man. Any fans of the $6 million man? Yeah, 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 $6 million man. So the gospel according to Steve Austin, exactly what is it? Um, if you know anything about the $6 million man, if you don't, I'm going to bring you up to speed real quick. The premise of the show was this. Steve Austin is an astronaut, and on one of his missions while re-entering the Earth's atmosphere, uh, his craft uh, encountered some difficulty, and he ended up having to conduct a crash landing. In that crash landing, he was critically injured, and the doctors, who were all part of the kind of the government scientist team, decided that they were going to make him the guinea pig of this new technology, this bionic technology. That is, where they were going to uh, repair his injuries, but include in his body these special things in the area that were damaged. So, for instance, he received a bionic eye. Now, to the, to the outside, the person looking on, it looked just like a regular eye. Underneath his skin, they also included a bionic arm and also a bionic leg. And so what happened was Steve Austin uh, was able to uh, come in and do life amongst regular everyday people after having been bruised, after having been crushed. And when he found himself in crisis situations, because he went out to be somewhat of a, a hero and, and helping to, to, to expand the cause of good and human good over that of evil, 
But what Steve would do is he would find himself, if someone was underneath a car, you know, with the new binding capabilities, he could lift it and pick it up. If he needed to see extremely far, or I think maybe even there was a hearing component, he could, he could hear well, he could run like 60 miles an hour. But the good thing about Steve was that as you imitated his ways as a child, you didn't have to be able to run really fast because they did everything in slow motion. Everybody remember that? Like when, 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 it, when the $6 million man or the bionic man got in a bad situation, it would be like, and he would be running like 60, but all you had to do in the front yard was just do like this, you know? So it was a great, you know, and it wasn't like a superhero because the, the, the bionic man didn't seem too far out of reach. But that's more than I can say when as a child I began reading the Bible and I would see the Lord Jesus Christ turning water into wine or healing lepers or enduring great pain and, and the difficulties, not just the difficulty of the cross, but I would see Jesus do all these things and I would be convicted and compelled, but more convicted than anything when I would hear people say that we are supposed to live like Jesus. Like, like, like my, my first, the thing, and, and I, I'm not guilty, I'm just going to share this with you. So I would say to people, like, man, if I was to live like Jesus, I feel like Jesus had something extra in the deck. I feel like Jesus had like some, some stuff that we aren't working with. Is it fair for the scriptures to ask us to live like Jesus? He seemed to be on this kind of theological steroid. I mean, he had something underneath all of that nice and delicate, soft, wonderful child bouncing on the knee, you know, demeanor. He seemed to have something that we didn't have. Of course, Jesus could kill it when it came to working through evil and betrayal and denial and all these different pieces. We don't have that stuff. At least that was my argument. But I believe today, as we're going to walk through Luke chapter 20 through 2, we're going to understand some things about the Lord Jesus Christ and the kind of life that the scriptures call us to doesn't demand that we be bionic. It doesn't demand that we be, be anything other than a person who fully trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we talk about Jesus in our place, we are going to explore five crucial moments in this particular passage where Jesus did life the way we should have done it. And it is not far above and beyond what is possible by those who are endued by the Holy Spirit and that would follow the Father's example and his love. So let's explore that. That's our adventure today. Well, and here's how we're going to explore that. When we look at the example of Jesus, I want you to kind of think about this kind of thought umbrella. We should not only learn from Jesus, but we should also live like him. Simple enough, right? We should not only learn from Jesus, but we should also live like Jesus. In other words, when we hear great messages preached about the Lord Jesus Christ, we are not given the option of just sitting in the pews and eating our metaphorical popcorn and appreciating the show and go, man, that Jesus did it again, high-fiving like we saw in one of our great and favorite superhero movies. I can't wait to see what episode Pastor Rod or Pastor Ron are going to roll out for us next week in this ongoing saga of the great, awesome, supernatural Jesus. We really don't get that option. We are called in more places than one to do life the way Jesus did. And that call isn't just a call to moral superiority or some kind of uh, sociological consistency. It is a real powerful life that is authentically human and audaciously holy. We're called to that. And it is possible. It is possible. So 
you've already heard uh, kind of the, the opening text there, Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 6. And these five key moments that I'm going to read through, the first one appears here in verses 7 through 8. Kind of set the scene for you. The Lord Jesus Christ is sitting down in that night, and he is about to eat the Passover with his disciples. And the scriptures set it up this way. Then came the, uh, the day of the unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. Now, this doesn't seem like a great explosive theological truth until you consider that Jesus himself is the Passover lamb. Jesus himself is the Passover lamb. He is our substitute. We learned that in our, our, in our Exodus series that the, that the Passover idea points really, the whole Bible points to the Lord Jesus Christ as being the lamb, the sacrifice of God on our behalf. What I find to be simple and beautiful about this passage is that the Lord Jesus knows that he indeed is the ultimate Passover lamb, but he still participates in the simplicity of Passover as a Jewish tradition and as a statement of worship toward God. In other words, he does not view himself as being above it, even though it points to him. Where am I going with this? Jesus never viewed himself as being above the Passover, even though he is the point of the Passover. In other words, while it is all about him, he makes it all about them. He draws them in to participate in the Passover with him. What does this say about the Lord Jesus Christ? It tells us that he is the epitome of humility. Never once do you see Jesus when he's at the table with his disciples advertising the fact that, yo boys, this is all about me. Or if he does, he does it in a very a way that is teaching, that is humble, that is mild and is meek. Or as the apostle Paul would put it, Jesus, he says, let this mind be in you. Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. So in every moment where Jesus could be rightly self-exalted, rightly self-exalted, he always humbled himself. He always just played a role. He, he played a role where he was always in the midst of his people serving others. Just a, a, an attitude of ultimate humility. Now, let me just kind of say this to you. We all can be hum humble when our circumstances are humiliating. Right? There's just no brownie points to be found when life has snatched the rug from under us. And we have no rightful reason to boast. But the Lord Jesus Christ has every right to wave his own flag, to ring his own bell. But yet he still chooses to even follow the law, not to destroy it, but to sit down with his disciples and enjoy not just a simple supper, but to enjoy and appreciate this great moment that God, throughout the Old Testament, as far as their history is concerned, throughout their whole history, has called them to honor. Why does this matter to you? Have you ever felt that you had served God enough? And that your current role in the church, that who you were, when you got baptized, how long you've been saved, how much Bible you know, how many good deeds you've done, somehow gave you a get out of hell free card as well as a get out of having to go to church free card or get out of needing to serve God in any meaningful way free card. Have you ever felt that sense of entitlement? I have. Have you ever written a check that made you feel like, man, I don't need to show up for a few weeks? Have you ever felt like you have been working and walking for Jesus in such a long period of time that you're just going to take a few plays off, both traditionally in terms of showing up here and morally? Like the old diet cheat methodology. Man, I've been killing it on my cardio for 15 straight weeks. I'm going to have ribs and ice cream for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Have you ever felt that? 
Well, guess what? We also do that and feel that spiritually, even if we won't confess to each other this morning. But the Lord Jesus Christ never takes any plays off. He's always operating with the highest level of humility. And guess what? It would be in his right to take some plays off. The Passover actually points to him, but he still makes it about them. I want to enjoy this with you, my disciples. He is the epitome of humility. But let's advance the story just a little bit further. In the next uh, group of passages, specifically in Luke chapter 22, verses 19 through 23, Jesus is now sitting at the table taking the Passover with his disciples, and he makes this announcement. In verses, verse 19, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me, and likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this is the cup poured out for you, the new covenant of my blood, but, eat, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man with whom he has betrayed him. And they begin to question one another, which of them it could be who is going to do this. We've also heard, we've heard already that Jesus never viewed himself as above the Passover, even though he was the point of the Passover. But now we see again that Jesus never treated Judas as anything less than a brother, even though he was a traitor. I mean, Jesus, when he makes the announcement, I mean, Jesus has known this fact that this is his betrayer. And here it is, Judas is at the table with them. He says, the person who is going to betray me is actually here with me. And his hand is in the, in the dish with my hand. The person who is going to betray me, if you know anything about the history of the narratives of the gospel, Judas was responsible for even carrying the money bag. So this whole earthly ministry, Jesus known that there's a betrayer amongst them, but never treats Judas as anything less than a brother. What does this have to say to us? What does this mean about authentic humanity and audacious holiness? It tells us that Jesus Christ is the icon of indiscriminate love. He is not only the epitome of humility, but the icon of indiscriminate love. That is, loving all, no matter what. Loving Judas, loving us, loving you and I, loving the worst of the worst in spite of ourselves. That is, regardless of how bad we are, in light of ourselves, fully considering all of our weaknesses, and instead of ourselves, knowing that we bring mess to the table and want God to bless it. He is the icon of indiscriminate love. Who can treat even a traitor like a brother. Man, he's living in our place. This is the kind of life that we should live. It gets better. It gets better. Jesus continues to turn up the volume on this audaciously holy life in Luke chapter 22, verses 27 through 30, when it says, for uh, uh, who is the greater? Now, I got to set this up. You, you can take this down real quick. I need to set this up. So Jesus is eating with the disciples, right? He's already revealed that his betrayer is right there with him. While Jesus is just kind of like doing their thing, I don't know if he's getting out more potato salad or he's trying to make sure that there's plenty of sweet tea at the end of the table. I don't know what's going on in the rest of the room. But there is a debate that breaks out amongst the disciples as to which of them is going to be the greatest when the kingdom is in full flex. Right? Jesus is about to blow this thing up, guys. I'm going to be like the VP of judgment. Uh, you know, who, what you want to get? You're going to be like, you know, executive over holiness. What are you, I mean, like his disciples are debating about what special roles they're going to have. 
right? And Jesus overhears the conversation. He doesn't flip a table on him. He doesn't start, he doesn't do the Godfather and take out baseball bats and start going in. He, he goes over to the guys and then he says this. He says in, 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 in Luke chapter, in verses 20, uh, 27 through 30, he says, for who is the greater? The one who reclines at the table, the one who serves. Is it not what the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who stayed, who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and that you may sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes. But Jesus defines in that moment as they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. You know who the greatest is amongst you? The one who would serve the most. I'm the greatest at the table, Jesus says. I'm really, I, I recline at the table, but I'm the one who's going to wash your feet. I'm the one who's going to die for you. And then he calls, you know, he calls and commissions his disciples to also drink from that same cup. So this, this idea that, oh yeah, you're going you're, you're gonna to have seats in the kingdom, but you're going to drink from this same cup. You're going to be great among men, but you'll also be low among men because you are called to serve. This is a beautiful paradigm shift. We often talk about it in terms of the way up being down, but I'll express it this way. Jesus never demanded to be served, but rather committed, he was committed to be the one who does serve. Uh, this is riddled throughout the book of Luke. As a matter of fact, the book of Luke is home to one of the phrases that Jesus Christ uses most often to refer to himself, the son of man. It is an expression of full-on, authentic, full-throttle humanity, but also his ultimate position where he will judge. But he is a, it is a full expression of his humanity. In, in, in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it says, And the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. He did not come to, uh, to, to be served, but to serve. But wow, Jesus deserves to be served. Did you guys hear any of those songs that we just sang about him? I mean, have you seen his track record? Have you, have, you, have you heard about his qualifications? If there's anybody that deserves to be served, it's Jesus. But yet, he's working overtime to serve us. Man, what a compelling life. Not only is he the epitome of humility and the icon of indiscriminate love, but he is the ultimate illustration of servant leadership. The ultimate illustration of servant leadership. If I've got the position of highest esteem, then I need to deliver the service of greatest intensity. And Jesus showcases that in the life that he lives. But he advances the story. I forgot to tell you, Luke has 71 verses. That's why we're moving like this. We won't cover all of them. In verses 39 through 46, something else happens. But before we get there, you need to realize that after Jesus and his disciples get up from the table, he goes out to pray. And he cautions his disciples that they should also be men of prayer. While he's praying, the disciples kind of fall asleep. And Jesus is there before the Father, praying earnestly. And the scriptures say that his, his prayer reaches such a, a great uh, intensity that, 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 that his, his sweat has become like great drops of blood as he's before the Father. And let's, let's read the account. It says in, he, in, in, in verse 39, and he came out and he went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to one place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove from me this cup, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. 
And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, and he came to his disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. I want you to note here that in both of these moments, in these three moments, him going out to pray, sending his disciples to pray, and even circling back in his conversation with him, Jesus never lowers his expectations. He just increases his supplications. Hear me carefully. Jesus never lowers his expectations. He simply increases the intensity of his supplication. See it clearly in the passage here, right? Follow me real quick. He goes out as was his tradition, and he tells the disciples, hey, why don't you guys pray? I'm going to go over here and pray. Jesus kneels before the Father, and the weight of what he is about to do on our behalf rests on him. And he intercedes, and he, and, and, and he cries out to the Father. And he says, if there's any way that this cup could pass from me. But then he continues to pray. And the Bible says something that you and I need to write down, check mark, circle, highlight, underline, indent, tear off in small pieces of paper, sew it to the interior of our purse, and even put one inside of our wallet. It says, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. One of the most crucial places that any believer can reach in prayer is not a negotiation with God where you're trying to tug a war and get what you want, but is to reach a place of total submission where you say, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. If you're praying and pushing through something crazy right now, you're not trying to pray until something happens. You're trying to pray until you can reach the point of nevertheless, because that's exactly how Jesus prayed. The point of nevertheless is one that says this. It declares for us clearly that Jesus is not only the epitome of humility, the icon of indiscriminate love, the ultimate illustration of servant leadership, but he is the poster child of prayer without ceasing. Do you see now why the Bible can tell us to pray without ceasing? Because we need to pray in a way to where our hearts and any ambition that we have that might lead us in any direction other than the full-on execution of God's will, we would be empty of that. And we would say, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. The Bible goes on. It goes further. And Jesus talks about his desire. He's prayed for his disciples. He even points out to, to Peter prior to his denial, Satan desires to sift you, but I have prayed for you. Jesus' solution is not run to another city and stop participating in ministry so Satan will leave you alone. He says, Satan desires to sift you, but I have prayed for you. Prayer is not just a tradition that we do before our meals. It's not the nicety that we do before we, when we teach our children to lock their hands and kneel before their bedside. Prayer is a crucial, critical part of the believer's life, and Jesus models it ultimately, awesomely, intensely, and beautifully. He prays until he reaches the point of nevertheless, and that's where we need to go as well. We learn more about the Lord Jesus in the subsequent verses, 66 through 71. Wow, we did make it. When the day came, the assembly of elders and the people were gathered together, both the chief priests and the scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, if you are the Christ, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe 
And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, you will see the Son of Man, and he shall be seated at the right hand of power. And so they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. And they said, we have, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from your own lips. In this passage, we, we clearly see that Jesus, that Jesus, if, if, if that, that Jesus is the, is the, if you want to, Jesus never wavers in his testimony, even while enduring the worst of personal injury. Now, how do we get that? Prior to getting this passage, because we couldn't read all 71 verses, you need to know that Jesus predicts that one of his disciples would deny him, that's Peter. He's already unpacked that one of his disciples would betray him, who is Judas. And then in the night that he is being arrested, when they show up, he says to those who see him, they say, man, you've come out with pitchforks and knives and, and like torches to get a criminal. What's up with all this while I was with you daily in the temple? And then finally, as they arrest him, it is Peter who indeed uh, does deny him, as he says, three consecutive times, I don't know who Jesus is. I don't know him. Can you imagine the weight of having those with whom you have spent three years pouring out your life and those for whom you are going to die, to turn around and to betray and then to deny you? I mean, it would be one thing, like, I mean, maybe Judas, because he was like always the disciples who was at the back of the crowd and never paying attention, and his, his notes were always messy in his backpack during teaching time. Maybe you didn't expect much from Judas, but Peter? And then the, the scriptures further tell us, I didn't read it for you, but the scriptures further tell us that after they, they, they were arrested him, that the soldiers, the very soldiers that he would die for, right? Soldiers that he would die for, soldiers that he would have the same intense love that he did for even John, they punch him and mock him and say, tell us which one of us punched you. Prophesy that. Reveal that. This incredible weight of denial, brutal treatment, arrested like a criminal, beaten by soldiers, mocked by the public, and then ultimately the piece that I did read shows you where he is totally and completely misunderstood by politicians. Words and everything taken totally out of context. This is our Lord Jesus Christ, who is not only the epitome of humility, the icon of indiscriminate love, the ultimate illustration of servant leadership, the poster child for prayer without ceasing, but he is the supreme example of self-control. Now here is the question of the hour, ladies and gentlemen. Brothers and sisters, if Jesus is all of these things, how is it in any way fair or even possible that we should be called to do the same? And let's just spend the rest of our time there. You see, Jesus, who does all these things in our place and models all these behaviors, notice we aren't called to turn water into wine, but we are called to a life of humility, indiscriminate love, uh, servant leadership, prayer without ceasing, and, uh, and absolute self-control. How does the Lord expect us to do these things? I'll tell you how. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verse 13, you won't have it on the screen, but just turn to it in your Bibles and just hear me share it. It says, there is no temptation taken you or that you have encountered that is uncommon to man. First and foremost, the scripture declares that I don't care what is pushing, pulling, or pressing against your life, that the Lord has supernaturally limited the amount of temptation that you encounter to match what is, what is possible to endure by man. First of all, 
Number two, that same verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says that God, with the temptation, who is faithful, has built in a way of escape that you might be able to endure. So God, on the basis of his own, the Father, on the basis of his own integrity, has placed parentheses on the intensity of temptation, but then also made sure that there was an exit strategy. It says that he provides the way of escape based on his own faithfulness. In other words, when you are in Christ, it is official from this point forward, from that point forward, when you are in Christ, when you sin, you can't say the devil made me do it. Anybody been to an escape room? Yeah, yeah. Have you ever um, been to an escape room and uh, you go with a crew of your friends and the moment that they give the little orientation, you immediately realize that you're totally unqualified for this and you're probably the dumbest person in the room? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're like, okay, ready, go, guys. And everybody's over here like pressing stuff and chiseling things and hey, I found a secret map in this drawer. And you over here like this, what y'all need me to do? You know, you're the only person pulling stuff that don't move on the walls, right? Like you are just not cut out for escapes. That's not the case in the Christian life. You have not been set up in a scenario that is a mismatch for your current IQ or your level of, 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 of your ability to handle it if you're in Christ. So this unique provision of God based on his faithfulness, having limited the intensity of temptation and built in an exit strategy is a part of the outworking of relationship with him. But the Bible goes on to tell us, even in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, that if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit that dwells in you. So of all the things that we would say that Jesus had the upper hand or the jump start on us, we would have to say that it was the resurrection. But then the Bible tells us that the same spirit that is responsible for having raised Jesus from the dead takes residency in those who trust Christ. Man, that's two out of three excuses just murdered. The father says that on the, state, on the basis of his own integrity, He's limited the intensity and built in an exit strategy in all of our trials and temptations. If we'll just look for it and find it and press into his faithfulness. And then he says that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead resides in all those who trust Christ. So that the power to live a life above the dead works of the past is not just possible, but it's supernaturally practical. Because he's living in you. But then what about my past? My past has, has a ravenous voice. Like, I, I can't seem to get away. My past yells at me. It screams at me. My, my past is deep. It has hooks in me. I come from multiple generations of alcoholism, sexual abuse, drug abuse, multiple generations of racism and all kinds of pick-your-favorite-nasty-ism, right? We, we can look in the mirror and make all kinds of reasons for ourselves as to why we can't live a life of full humanity and audacious holiness like Jesus did. But then the Bible tells us that Jesus didn't just live before us as a celebrity, but as a model. And then would also go to the cross and die, not like a martyr, but as a person who is officially unhooking anything that would have its grips on the believer's life. 
The death of Jesus Christ is also done in our place so that there would be no longer an excuse to live in response to the old man. The death of Jesus Christ serves a death blow to all things from our past and any power in our present that would seek to rob us of the ability to live like Christ. He has done this in our place. So he has not just modeled a great and awesome life before us, but then he goes a step further and he takes on the personal weight of giving us the stuff that we need to live like him. Therefore, the Bible is fully, fully fair. Not only fair, fully appropriate when it calls us to take on the mind of Christ, to to reckon ourselves dead to the past, Romans chapter 6 to do life like Jesus did. It isn't just an aspirational statement. It is a convictional statement. It is the expectation of heaven, not because you're just gonna try harder to be more better morally, but because the very equipment that's required, you might not be bionic, but whatever you are, there is something working underneath this flesh that you see when I trust the gospel that is above and beyond my native abilities, and so are they for you if you trust him. So, we should not only learn from Jesus, but we should also live like him. It is not an unfair demand because Jesus lives the life we should have lived, but yet he dies the death we should have died. How so? Our God, who is faithful, fully holy, and righteous, demands that somebody pay for the sin. But he recognizes that our pockets are empty. Our ability to pay for our own sin, that we are constantly bankrupt before him. But even God steps in and puts someone in our place to pay that cost. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we say he's in our place, not just living in our place, but also dying in our place. And then also being raised as a a first fruit so that when we see him raised, we have a future hope and a current hope that we can live like the Lord Jesus Christ. So my final appeal to you is this. If you're here and you in your personal history and relationship with the Lord or as the, even on the perimeter have said, I don't need to receive Jesus. All I need to do is just Act better and do what Jesus would do. I just need to put love and humility high on the shelf. How is that working? How is that working? Is there anybody out there who will admit that even on your best day morally, man, I mean, you get, you've, been, you've been killing it. You didn't cuss nobody out at work. You didn't take any paper clips. You didn't use any extra paper in the copier. You cut the coffee pot off when it got down to the last drip. You did all of the moral fundamentals, and you got in your car, and somebody cut you off, and you didn't say anything. But, man, what you said in your heart, you wouldn't want your mama to hear, ever. We all know that in our best moral day, we still miss it. So we realize that this isn't just about increased moral intensity when, it's, when we talk about following the example of Christ. The Lord fully anticipates that we will fall, but doesn't allow that fall to be an excuse because he provides forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ if we would confess that we need that forgiveness. 
And so this high moral call to live like Christ isn't about morality alone. That's just kind of the byproduct of following his example. There is a life of compassion and conviction and humility and self-sacrifice and leadership and prayer and alignment with the, the agenda of heaven that God wants us to race toward that we cannot do without his unique equipment. But God says, I'm providing that equipment for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that who shall ever believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The equipment that we need to live the life that God calls us to live is captured in the gospel. Will we plug in with our faith and be fueled by it? I want to ask you just as a point of application that if you, if you look over your life and you've been making excuses as to why you don't need Jesus because you're just going to try harder, that you would stop and recognize that you, need, you don't need to try harder, you need to trust harder in Christ that you can't do it alone. And if you are currently following, you are currently a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you are in a cycle of, of current consistent moral failure, I want you to, 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 to literally like think about that thing and where it's coming from and what is it. It is a preference for you. It is the person who has gone. If you are a believer who is currently trapped in sin, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I just want you to, I want you to just run to the Savior in this regard. You are the person in the escape room who has given up at, at five minutes in and just says, I'm not interested in the escape. That's who you are. That's who I am. That's who we are collectively when we fall to sin. And we need to take a step back and say, Lord, I'm not looking for the escape and I'm not leaning in your faithfulness. Help me to see it. Help me to see it. I would just ask you to pray. Pray without ceasing like Jesus did. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you this morning recognizing that you did it in our place. The life that you lived, the death that you died, and also the great victory that you exhibited on the cross and coming out of the grave. We want to tap fully into it, O oh holy God and Father. Strengthen our faith where we have great unbelief. Help us to understand what it means to live like you, not just academically, but Lord God, bring us to a place of understanding what it means to do so spiritually. We need you, Lord. We need you desperately. Your life is so compelling. We do want to live like you, but sometimes we give up because it doesn't seem like we can. But oh, the power of your Holy Spirit. Oh, the power of the broken chains of our past. Oh, the faithfulness of the Father. It's all there. Would you compel us, Lord God, to trust and to lean into those things? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.